0: Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth.
1: The goal to help you lead like never before, in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 465 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. So excited to have Tim Elmore. Back on the podcast today, lots to talk about. Do you know that we are approaching 20 million downloads on this podcast, going to drop any week? And we got a way to celebrate, listen to the end to find out how you can win some free stuff on us. Uh, Because when we hit a milestone... You guys benefit, you know that. And this episode is brought to you by MetaShare. They have a 98% customer satisfaction rating and an average member savings of 50% or more. Find out how much you could save today by going to metashare.com slash carry and by Red Letter Living. Learn more about their 40-day challenge and get 10 to 40% off church packs and pastors. You get a free book all at redletterchallenge.com slash carry. So Tim Elmore is back in the house. He is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop leaders. And since starting Growing Leaders, Tim has spoken to more than 500,000 students, faculty, and staff on hundreds of campuses across the country, as well as numerous organizations, including Delta, Chick-fil-A, The Home Depot, The John Maxwell Co., Home Bank, and so many others, and he's taught around the world. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes.com, Investor's Business Daily, the Huffington Post, MSNBC, the Washington Post, and so many others, and it's a pleasure to have Tim back. We're going to talk about the leadership landscape, and as you know, we're now moving into year three of crisis leadership. It's hard. Uh, Tim actually makes the case that leadership, regardless of the pandemic, uh, which never seems to end, is actually much more challenging than it used to be. We'll talk about the lasting impact of crisis on the next generation and then get into a fascinating conversation about paradoxical leadership. So, super excited for this episode. And we want to thank our partners as well. You know it's open enrollment season, and that is your dreaded yearly task of figuring out how we're going to pay for health care. Well, we all want two things when it comes to health care. Trust and affordability. With a 98% customer satisfaction rating and an average member savings of 50%, you can trust MediShare and it's affordable. So they offer access to over 900,000, almost a million healthcare providers and have a long track record. And uh, another thing I love about MediShare is that they offer free and unlimited professional virtual counseling sessions to their members. So right now is the time to make the switch before the year ends. Find out how much you could save by going to MediShare.com slash carry. That's M-E-D-I-Share.com slash carry. And uh, today's episode is brought to you by Red Letter Living. Today's pastors have more pressure than ever. The pandemic has forced a huge learning curve with technology, required church leaders to develop creative ways to connect with and shepherd their people. So if you and your staff are feeling burned out and under pressure, you are looking for ways to unite your team, Red Letter Living can help. Here's what one pastor had to say about their 40-day challenge experience. God is at work. I haven't seen this much excitement about something in a long time, and I'm so encouraged with the number of non-members who are joining in. So if you're looking for growth, if you're looking for unity, and you're looking for a way to refocus your church on what matters, check out Red Letter Living's 40-Day Discipleship Challenge. You can learn more about their 40-day challenges and get a 10 to 40% off discount On church packs and pastors, you always get a free book. So head on over to redletterchallenge.com slash carry. That's redletterchallenge.com slash carry. Well, uh, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Tim. We kind of go all over the place. And uh, yeah, if you're hearing a bit of background noise, if you're really listening, I mean, I normally listen to podcasts when I'm out and about, I'm I'm running, I'm on a bike ride, that kind of thing. But yeah, if you hear some surf and airplanes, yep, still the California studio. Got one or two episodes left here, and then it is back up to the snowy north. It has snowed quite a bit, so going back home for Christmas. Anyway, my conversation, leaders with Tim Elmore. So (laughs) I want to start here. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say the last two years have been really, really hard, uh, particularly on younger leaders and teenagers. I mean, school's been disrupted and interrupted. Uh, Remote work is, is hard on highly relational people. You've done a lot of research into Gen Z over the years. What do you think the impact has been on the next generation so far? I mean, here, as we move into a new year, it's like, oh, this thing still isn't over? Are you kidding yeah. me? Like, what do you think is happening yeah. to? You know, um,
0: when I think about the effect of the last two years on Generation Z, I think I think 2020 was the great accelerator. Whatever was happening slowly just got accelerated. So in regard to Gen Z, I think the mental health issues they were already struggling with actually got deeper. And I'm not a prophet of doom. I think good things happened as well. Uh, Many kids just got up and got serving and doing charitable acts and and that sort of thing. But um, in the fall of 2020, the CDC that we were all kind of following in America uh, posted a page that said, in August of 2020, One out of every four young adults contemplated suicide in the last month. Wow. Not one out of 50, one out of four. That's just 25%. That's just unacceptable to me. Yeah. Yeah. So now maybe they didn't pull out a gun or anything like that, but it crossed their mind. I'd like to, maybe I'd like to just end it all. So I do think we look back and say, we were all saying we need to do better at technology, and suddenly we had to do better at technology. We all said we need to do diversity, equity, and inclusion better. Suddenly, we had to do diversity, equity, and inclusion better. I think it just sped everything up. And Gen Z, you know, bless their hearts, in high school and college, were just realizing, ah, it just it just got deeper. Some of the th- challenges I'm facing.
1: I mean, it's interesting. I spend time, you know, I, I studied history for a few years in university, Tim. And one of the things I've often thought about, and I think we're living through a moment like that now. I mean, the First World War lasted for four years. The Second World War for five or six, depending on how you measure, right? And then the Depression was the better part of a decade. And the only thing that broke that was the Second World War. Almost every historian would tell you that. Like That would have continued indefinitely if it wasn't for a wartime economy. And you think about how that shaped previous generations, grandparents, -grandparents, Mm great-grandparents, that kind of thing. Do you think we're in that kind of a psychological, psyche-shaping moment right now? Because this is now moving into year three of deep disruption.
0: Yeah, I do. I do. And I'm just one guy, but here's why I say that. Every generation over the last five or six generations can point to a life-shaping Either tragedy or uh, marvelous event that that was a shaper. For instance, for the millennials, it was probably September 11th. For us in the U.S., 911 uh, shaped the millennials. Uh, for the Xers, a little bit before them, it was probably Watergate and a president in our country resigning. We'd never seen a president resign. Uh, for the Boomers, it was probably. Uh, the assassinations of the 1960s, uh, JFK, MLK, Robert Kennedy, um, but I think for Gen Z, it, it's this pandemic. They will never forget this. It will have shaped them, and just like the Great Depression kids, you know, of not the 1930s, yeah. I think they'll look back and say, "I either developed grit like the like the Great Depression uh, kids did, or they'll say." I, I don't know if I ever got away from this preoccupation with my safety, with my health. Mm. And of course, we're, we're pushing for grit. Uh, you know what I did, Carrie? I, d- I did a book during the yeah. pandemic. And um, I actually interviewed a bunch of people in retirement villages that were 85 to 95 years old, people that lived through the Great Depression. Oh, wow. And every one of them had a similar narrative. They said things like, oh, Mom and Dad worked with our neighbors, and we we saw us. They they saw us through. We got together as a as a community, and we you know we worked together. I heard stories of people that developed resilience and resourcefulness because of the tough time. Hmm. So what I'm hoping for is if we can lead these kids well, maybe we have another generation like those uh, builder generation kids that look back now and say, "Oh man, I got tougher. I got better." because it was hard. I was in a gymnasium for Pete's sake, you know, socially and emotionally. So that's my hope. And, and uh, we're just going to have to lead him well to get to Interesting.
1: This. As you share that, and, and I didn't know you wrote that. I'm going to have to look that up. That sounds absolutely fascinating to me. But it, it occurs to me, you know, everybody drew together. And I think most of us have heard stories like that. I don't know why. Yeah. And, and again, you do the research. I ask the questions. So tell me, I could be totally off 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 base on this, but it almost feels like over the last couple of years, we haven't drawn together, we've pulled apart. In other words, it's like, yeah, it's an, as yeah. for me in my house, like I'm going to get toilet, it starts with, I'm going to get toilet mm-hmm. paper and I will do it yes. at your expense rather than, oh, I have a role, I'll yes. share something. It sounds stupid now, right? Two years later. Yeah but, yeah, um, and, yeah. oh, I'll just build my backyard out, which I did, or I'm going to take care of myself, or I'm going to get that revenge travel in, or, you know, I'm going to be the mask yeah. guy yeah. or the anti-mask guy or whatever. I mean, do you see that kind of, like, I, I wish I could say I saw a lot of us coming together, but I'm not sure I've seen a lot of that in the yeah. last couple of years.
0: No, I th- you're spot on. Mm. Now, this is qualitative data, not quantitative, yeah. but as I did focus groups, I heard stories that I got emotional about. Uh, one 90-year-old guy told me that back in the 1930s during the Great Depression, he remembers neighbors meeting together, standing together on the street, and talking about the fact that you're going to grow lettuce, we'll grow carrots, someone else will grow tomatoes. And they they harvested the vegetables. They all grew in their individual gardens, then went to the Methodist church down in the basement, and they all shared their vegetables together. Even the people that were able to grow nothing got to take some of the vegetables. And mm. I thought, oh my gosh, that's so foreign to us. Yeah, it today. really is. Um, it does seem like we're 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 polarized and we're making sure we get
1: ours right. rather than making sure the community I got a whole there. Basement somehow full and we just I don't know about my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Gosh, yeah. That's really convicting. And you know, there yeah. there was an Old Testament moment. I can't give you exact chapter and verse where you know David did a raid, and it was like, do the people who go to battle get to share the spoils, or does everybody do it? And it was mm-hmm. a defining moment, and yeah. he said, no, everybody gets it. And yeah. Yeah. you know, I don't I don't know that we're there, Tim. Uh, again, forgive me for not knowing you wrote that. What's what's the book called? And obviously, you can get it everywhere books books are sold. Yeah, sure. It was called the
0: Pandemic Population. And it's specifically talking about what do we learn from past pandemics, from past struggles that we can, uh, in turn, apply today as we lead, particularly the next generation. So, yeah, thanks good for, for asking. for you. So, that was your lockdown that was project, a fun was book.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. I had nothing All else right. going on, so I thought, I'm going to research this and do it. Well, good so, for you. That was fun. Um, okay, you open up your new book, and you talk about—tell us a little bit about the new book. Just give us and tell us why you wrote it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the new book is called Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership. Now, um, I'm so intrigued when I see patterns in culture. You're you're the same way. One reason we love each other is we love to to look for patterns. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So um, this actually started three years ago in a green room right before a conference. I was talking to a bunch of other leaders, business leaders, and I decided to just kind of turn this group of people into a focus group. And I asked them, do you all think that leading today is harder than it was when you first got a leadership position? And Carrie, every single one of these leaders said, absolutely, wow. it is. One of them said 110%. You know, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they got emotional. And, and, I, and I said, now, that's funny we would say that because you would think it'd be harder way back in the day when we didn't know much about leadership. We were new but everybody stuck to their guns and said no it's harder today. So that started me on a search. Why is it more complex, more complicated? Why does it seem harder? Why do we get exhausted just leading a team today? And I'm not saying everybody right. does, but most people I talked to said, "Man, I'm I'm worn out." Yeah. And what I discovered is that there is a higher demand on leaders today by teams. Uh, people aren't wicked or Mm. evil, but we expect more of leaders. We bring, well, here's a good example. People today, uh, bring more education to a team. They're more highly educated than ever before. Gen Z is more educated than the millennials who are more educated than the Xers who are more educated than the boomers. So, you know, you come with more education. You think, you know, what, what, what to do. And you're, you're an armchair quarterback on that leader. Oftentimes, uh, they bring higher levels of emotion. So think with me, um, when I first started my career, the typical mantra of a boss was leave your personal problems at the door, come and get the work done. You know, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Well, today, I don't know what you're hearing, but I'm hearing bring your whole selves to work, you know, and that means your emotion and your baggage and your personal life. And I'm I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's harder for a leader to, with someone that's got a way more on their mind than just getting the work done. I think we bring a higher sense of entitlement today. Mm. And I probably sound like a grandpa right now, but but we feel entitled to more perks and benefits today than we did 20 years ago from the workplace. Uh, So anyway, all that to say, I think leaders haven't seen it happen in a day, but over time, we just have more expected of us. And I think part of the solution is our practicing some paradoxes that enable us to read the people
1: before we lead the people and be exactly what they need right now. What do you think is driving that? Because I I do not disagree with you. I think it is harder. Um, I think people do come in with expectations. You even raise that in your book. You call it entitlement. There's a greater sense of entitlement. Like I want vacation, not my, I mean, when I started years ago in leadership, it was like, well, you were lucky to get a week your first year. And there was a debate. Do you remember this? There was a debate about whether yeah, you got yes. vacation in the first year or whether you had to work a year yeah. to then earn a week or That's two right. of vacation. And people, you know, we have a lot of young leaders yeah. on the show who listen uh, to the show and they'd be yeah. like, excuse me, what planet are you talking about? But like, that was, that was like 25 <laughs> years ago. There was an actual yeah. debate of, do you have to mm-hmm. work a full 52 weeks to get a single day off? And it was a debate. Yeah. Now that's you right. people will say that's you're that's right. like against human rights or whatever but no that was like <laughs> me in my 20s right yeah. so, uh, so 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 yeah. what wh- yeah. why do you think why do you think it's changed so much Well let me volley back real quick we just
0: made some changes at growing leaders we're now giving unlimited PTO so unlimited personal time off so instead of work a year and then you'll get a week <laughs> if you're lucky it's like unlimited now what we have to do is hire responsible team members where we know they're going to own that job they have and not we're not worrying about them taking too much time off. But um, we're hearing Gen Z team members say, we'd like to work four day weeks. And I don't think it's because they lack a work ethic. I think they just want to consolidate and get the stuff done so they can enjoy a chunk of time you know, that's off. I, we're hearing Gen Z team members say, I want to get paid the same day I work. Whoa. In other words, at the end of eight hours, I get paid the same day. Let me tell you why they're yeah. saying that they're saying it because many of them are making they're just having a tough time making ends meet and they kind of need the cash at the end of the day and i feel badly for them because of that but
1: i thought you were going to say bitcoin investment this could be a new <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're well, that, investing that could daily. be part of the issue right it's there it's traded 24/7 that's i'm right. kidding yeah. <laughs> yeah just
0: a bad joke tim <laughs> that's right okay keep going uh, no that's okay okay so to answer your question uh why why is this I don't think there's one reason, it's probably a perfect storm of reasons, but one for sure is we have a smartphone in our hand today, every day, all day, and we are exposed to social media where we read the dirt on anybody, even our leaders, especially me, you know, or you, Mm -hmm. the the leader. So I I think part of it is we feel like we know uh, more than ever, and we are, we're exposed to more. So I think part of that just makes us demand more like, I'm in the know, I'm not in the dark, I'm in the know. And uh, so I, I really do think we're going to, the point of the book is we're going to have to lead in a different way. That's probably not rocket science for any of your listeners. But I think part of that difference is developing social and emotional skill sets that we didn't need as much 25 years ago. But we have to have them today to differentiate ourselves from 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 the the mediocre team or mediocre organization
1: I just want to underscore that for a minute. I was having a conversation with one of my sons this morning and we're in California. Uh, I've been here for about a month and uh, my kids flew in over the last week to to join us and uh, <laughs> you know it was funny because I, I think of myself as fairly tech savvy and you know I have all the devices blah 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 blah. But when they yeah. came in they just had a whole different mindset. So we're staying by the ocean just north of San Diego. And within 24 hours, my oldest son had figured out how to rent a motorcycle for a few days. And then all of a sudden we were going out to the desert and we were going to go find the Joshua tree. And then they were renting an Airstream trailer that they found on Airbnb and, uh, you know, and, and like all this. And and again, I have the same phone um, and I could have found the same things, but I was, I was saying to my youngest son, like, yeah. you know, I just, I just don't think of that stuff when I travel, like to rent a motorcycle yeah. or whatever, I might look into doing yeah. an excursion or something like that. We wanted to go sea kayaking, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But it is it is a different mindset. And when you're native to the technology rather than adapting to the technology, yeah. you're going to find different sites. You're going to see things differently. And I think people bring that yeah. to the workplace as well. And uh, funny that you yeah, guys yeah. did uh, unlimited personal time off. We, having read Netflix, no rules, rules. And I interviewed Aaron Meyer on this show, yeah, yeah. the co author of that book, along with Reed Hastings. Yeah. Uh, we debated it as a team and said, yeah, okay, if you have responsible people, and there's a whole ecosystem to it, I encourage people to please read yeah. the book or yeah. listen to the whole episode at least. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, we have no limit to vacation and uh, we don't really have an expense mm-hmm. policy. And, uh, you know, it's do the yeah. responsible yeah. thing. But there are things that are shifting as well. Um, now, you said something really yeah. interesting. You have this whole list in the book where you talk about all the leaders who stepped down. Um, there has been yeah. a great yeah. resignation, and we've talked about that, it mm-hmm. seems ad nauseum, uh, on, yeah. on my channels. Uh, but you're saying there's been a great exit for a lot of prominent CEOs too. Can you tell us what, and then can you tell us why? Why is, why is that happening?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's uncanny to me. So um, beginning in late 2019, and then certainly through the year 2020, uh, there was a great revolving door of CEOs. In fact, Fortune Magazine covered a feature article called The Great CEO Exodus of 2020. And it was right after the first quarter of that year, we saw really a ridiculous amount of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. The CEO of Disney stepped down. The CEO of IBM stepped down. The CEO of Hulu, Uber Eats, Harley-Davidson. The list just went on and on and on. And as I read this, this data, I thought, what is going on? But I think it goes back partly, Carrie, to what we just talked about. I think a lot of leaders said, I just, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've earned enough cash and I'm going to throw in the towel. I've done my time. And so way before retirement age, they thought, I'm going to repurpose my life. And um, I'm not saying that's evil. I'm just saying, boy, I think the time now is not to, it's not time to step back. It's time to step up. And I'm I'm imploring people in this book, The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, let's practice these social and emotional intelligence skill sets that will keep us in the game and make us just better for for staying. Oh, it's a
1: great framing. And, you know, there are a lot of business leaders who listen to this podcast and they're like, yeah, I've got stock options. And then there's a whole bunch of pastors who are like, yeah, on the financial picture, I'm not doing quite as well as the Fortune 500 people. (laughs) I think I'm here for a while longer. Um, But again, you know, the work I do with Barna, they just had a a recent poll that showed that 38% of pastors are now thinking of leaving yeah. ministry. Not their position, but full-time vocational mm-hmm. ministry. Yeah. And that's up from 29% yeah. 10 months earlier. Um, so what you're saying is yeah. a really important point. Now, you make a similar argument. Mark mm-hmm. Sayers will be on the show or has been on the show uh, to talk about uh, leadership moving from complicated to complex. And you both use the exact yeah. same terminology. And and to be honest, I, yeah. I always thought of those two words as Almost synonyms, but you make a distinction yeah, yeah. between complicated and complex. And I think it's it's <clears> salient to our conversation today and to the leadership landscape. What is the difference between complicated leadership and complex leadership? Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, both are hard. <laughs> so if you're <laughs> taking notes, listeners, H A R D. But but here's the difference: a complicated day or or problem might be. Uh, let's say, a kid in a math class who's looking up at the chalkboard and the teacher's written an equation up on the chalkboard. He dozes off for five minutes, wakes back up. The problem is still complicated. No harder, no easier than it was five minutes ago. Complex is, let's say, you're an air traffic controller. And you doze off there for five <laughs> minutes. Well, now you wake back up five minutes later. It's a, I mean, the problem's just gotten, it's just evolved. You know right. what I'm saying? And I think that's what's happened. Problems have evolved, not just stayed the same. It'd be one thing to say, same problem I had last year and I'm and I'm getting closer. It just evolves if we step back. I talked to leaders, Carrie, hmm. over the last year that said, I feel like I made a year's worth of decisions in one month. And, and and part of it was the COVID thing, the new variant, then another variant, mask back on, stay away, no, come in, you know, and I feel a lot, I, I, you'll love this. I talked to one CEO that said, I feel like I have to be a cheerleader, a coach, a motivational speaker, a strategist, you know, and a therapist, <laughs> you know, all, all, all in one. And I, I, I'm probably, that's hyperbole perhaps, but I'm just feeling like a lot of leaders are going I don't know if I can do this any longer. And 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 by the way, I think some leaders are going, I want to get a pandemic-proof job. <laughs> so maybe I'll become my own boss, you know, and do a consulting and don't work for anybody, don't work for a church. And so I think some people are actually doing that. I'm getting a pandemic-proof job that I can work out of my house and do it solo.
1: You know, and that might pandemic-proof you, but it's not going to complex-proof you. The world is that's infinitely right. more complex than it was. Yeah, and when you start thinking about metaverse, you start thinking about Web three. You start looking yeah. at the decentralization that yeah. is right around the corner. That's only going to become more complex, which leads yeah. us to your right. premise that what we need or what we need to become is paradoxical leaders. Can you can you define that? Like, what yeah. is a paradoxical leader, Tim?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, first and foremost, paradox is a word we all know, but maybe we didn't use it yesterday in a conversation. So a paradox is a, is a seemingly contradictory proposition that when two parts or three parts come together, we think that couldn't go together, but after further digging, you realize, oh, uh, that does go together. So one one example I often use is I live in Atlanta, Georgia. During the quarantine when we all went home in twenty twenty. There were fewer cars on the road driving around, but accidents, car accidents, went up. And that seems like a paradox. How could that be? Well, you know what happened? Because there were fewer cars on the road, people drove more recklessly. You know, they felt, I don't need to be careful. So, I mean, you know, now when you understand that, you go, Of course. So, I think leadership paradoxes are where leaders realize I've got to exhibit two qualities at the same time, Mm -hmm. or at least perhaps during the same day right i may need to be both confident and then humble i need to do this and then that and along the way i realized it was the very paradox that made me win today now these are interpersonal skills this is my verbal nonverbal and paraverbal communication coming out but it causes me to lead better and so i rounded up eight there may be 8000 <laughs> but i rounded up eight paradoxes in this book that i felt like if we could do this we could really really win in the 21st century. So I, yeah,
1: and we may not touch on all eight, but I want to get to the majority of them, Tim. And when I read what you were writing, um, it really resonated with me. So when you think about the eight paradoxes of great leadership, I think the first one might be confidence and humility, which when I read that, I'm like, oh yeah, that actually resolves a lot of the tension that I have have mm-hmm. felt trying to talk about. I talk about leadership insecurity a lot. And, you know, um, you get you get yeah. the confident yeah. leader, you get the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You get the narcissistic leader, but then you also get the humble yeah. leader who says yeah. I'm humble, but they don't really accomplish anything or they're actually just yeah. <laughs> very uncertain. <laughs> yeah. So walk us through that yeah. because I think that's a great place to start. Okay. How do you lead inside the paradox of confidence and humility? Yeah, it's a great question. So let me see if I can summarize this in a minute
0: here. Um, I I think leaders have to uh, possess inspiring confidence. I don't think people join a team unless they feel like the leader's confident he or she can can take us to a, a new mountain. Um, but I think the great ones express that confidence with palpable humility. Uh, in today's complex world, people look for anyone with a clear sense of confidence. And yet at the same time, people demand that a leader's confidence doesn't blind them to their own humanity. You know, in other words, if I see a leader that's always confident, I go, what? What are you smoking? <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You, you're not that good. You know, you know what I'm saying? And we start thinking, oh my gosh, he he's not even aware of his own flaws, his own his own humanity. But when I have confidence, we can do it. But my humility expresses, but I know we can't do it unless we work together. I need your input. I need you to speak into this. Oh, my gosh, it's so winsome. So, Carrie, in every one of these chapters on each of these paradoxes, I give a case study. And my case study on this one was Bob Iger, the former CEO of, of, of Disney. When Bob Iger took over, you might know his story well. He wrote an autobiography. But Bob said, I did not know what I was doing. I had never led an enterprise like Disney that sold plush toys, theme park tickets, animated movies, you know, they're into everything. And so he said, I had to meet with the people I was leading and ask them, what the heck are we doing, you know? And so you can imagine how humbling that was. He would sit down, imagine you sitting down with I don't know what I'm doing, what do you, you you know? I feel like that's every day, but go ahead, So I,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) on my team, I, <laughs> I don't understand the podcast. problem you solve it. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, exactly. So I've got a quote from Bob. Let me, let me uh, bring it up, and I want to yes, read please. it, because it's so, so helpful. Bob said, "You have to be humble, and you can't pretend to be someone you're not or to know something you don't. You're also in a position of leadership, though, so you can't let humility prevent you from leading. It's a fine line. And something I preach today, you have to ask the questions you need to ask, admit without apology what you don't understand, and do the work to learn what you need to learn as quickly as you can. Well, Bob Iger was able to do something that Michael Eisner was unable to do. You might remember Michael Eisner was the CEO right before Bob. So Michael was kicked off the, the, the team as CEO by the board at Disney because he started showing if I can just be candid and blunt here, a, a kind of a pompous, arrogant, you know, I know everything sort of attitude. And the board said, no, you don't. You're out of here. So Michael had been in dialogue with Steve Jobs to try to purchase Pixar. But it was two egos, <laughs> if I can just be blunt here, you know, you can imagine the ego in the oh room that was when yeah. those two guys met. So it was like this contest every time, and it ended up in an impasse every time. So when Bob Iger took over, he lets a little time pass. He lets the dust settle from the Eisner regime. But then he calls up Steve Jobs and says, Steve, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, Steve, it's Bob Iger. I'm the new guy in town, you know, at Disney. He said, I know this may sound like a crazy idea, but I know you and Michael tried to talk through partnering and it didn't work out. I just can't help but think, Steve, that we just might be better together. And Steve Jobs' first words back were, that's not a crazy idea. And so because he entered with humility and starts with, this might be a crazy idea, you know, someone else leans in and goes, that's not a crazy idea. And so the two of them start talking together. Well, Bob's humility was just winsome. In fact, so winsome, he f- he became one of Steve's closest friends. And when Steve Jobs died, you remember, not long yeah. ago, there was just a handful of people at that memorial service, and Bob Iger and his wife were two of those people. And I think it was his humility and his confidence that won this technology icon over named Steve Jobs, and they bought Pixar. Now, here's the cool thing. Sorry about monopolizing no, this, this conversation great. here, Gary, but- Here's what made this confidence, humility thing so extraordinary. So Disney actually purchases Pixar, which is quite a feat in itself. But then as they welcome Pixar onto the larger team, they put Pixar in charge of all of Disney animation. So I own you, but would you tell us what to do? That is confidence and humility right there. And I just am blown away when I see a leader that's able to do something like that.
1: Now, that's a great story, and I think it was under Iger that there was explosive growth at Disney too, right? They got into the streaming world, yeah, Marvel,
0: yeah, Marvel, and, yeah, Marvel yeah, and all the yeah. acquisitions.
1: I, I did the, Lucas, I, films. Yeah, Lucas Yeah, Lucasfilms. I was going to say, I think Star Wars came under his regime. I know we have a lot yeah. of uh, Disney yeah. fans out there who will correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, they know a <laughs> that's lot that's more right. about we'll it get, than we'll I get do. <laughs> so confident humility. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, there's there's a there's mm-hmm. a well worn quote by C.S. Lewis who says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. Mm -hmm. So, for a leader who's not 100% sure, okay, well, what is humility and what is appropriate confidence? Um, You know, so let me, let me, let me pack this out for you. You know, when I was starting out as a communicator, um, one of the things you have to work through is, you know, I probably have a natural gifting for communication, but in my 30s, I would be told, oh, that was a great sermon. And I would say, no, it wasn't. Or it would be, you know, yeah, I just kind yeah. of blow it off. And I realized as, as I matured and got older, okay, that's false humility. Because what if it was a good message? Yeah. What if God actually used it? Yeah. On the other hand, you know, arrogance is, look at how amazing I am and look at how great I am. And I can swing in that yeah, direction yeah. as well if I'm not uh, careful and stay <laughs> grounded and the whole deal. So, yeah. you know, when when you think about humility and confidence, um, is there any further clarification or definition you want to give leaders? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there is a false yeah. humility that isn't helping anybody, and then there's a confidence that that can be too much of a strut. That again is going to become counterproductive.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I do want to answer your question, but the first thing that comes to my mind makes me smile. I have never met a Canadian that's too that's that's not humble. Oh. I think part of your humility carries your your Canadian. Canadian right? You're just I'm oh no, I, I, I just
1: was born on the other side I, I'm of the not border. That's good. That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I rarely meet an American that's not too confident. I think we just are overconfident in the, in the United States. No, but in all seriousness, here's what I would say. I've come to believe that my confidence makes my leadership believable. Hmm. But my humility makes my confidence believable. Oh, wow. So here's what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think people really believe I can lead them unless I got a sense of I think we can pull this off.
1: Right. They've
0: got to hear their leader say that or they're going to be scared. But my humility steps in right away and lets them know, but I but I'm not I'm not so arrogant that I think I can do this all alone or I I can do this um quickly or easily. So I feel like when you have both, you become a human being that um, perhaps knows together we can we can do this. So, can I give you my personal homework assignment on Please, this one? Yeah. I gave myself an assignment, every one of these paradoxes. This one came to me from two board members that I that I respect. And I was talking to them about this very thing, and they said, You should try this. When I'm in a meeting, Carrie, and I'm in a debate of some kind. I now try to speak as if I believe I'm right, but I want to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So I always want to speak. I mean, I don't want to ever speak and make people go, do you even believe what right, you're saying? Right, But if I listen, I, I I sometimes have a hard time listening without just making it a time to think what I'm going to say, say next. So if I'm listening as if I believe I'm wrong, I'm really tuning in to that other person. I'm really thinking, man, you probably got something to share. Do you know what that communicates to someone? Oh, it communicates value, and and oh my gosh, I'm 22, but this 62 year old guy is listening to me, so I, I just feel like that's been wonderful for me with my family, with my team at Growing Leaders, and generally when I'm out of supermarket any given day and talking to a stranger. That's a so, great
1: mantra, yeah. and you know, and I see I've seen this in in church leadership in particular, but humility that goes nowhere isn't helpful. You know what I mean. You have to have direction yeah, behind yeah. that, and I think humility is great. I will, yeah. I will follow a humble person over an arrogant person any day. Yes, but you know, and and yep. boldness that doesn't listen can easily be um, misdirected. Okay, so let, let's if if we would, yeah. and if, if this is a um, going nowhere, just say so, and we can move to another paradox. But. Um, insecurity is a big issue for a lot of leaders. Any thoughts yeah. on yeah. insecurity? Because somewhere underneath this tension, this paradox between boldness and humility, I think is insecurity. And most of the leaders I know uh, are insecure. And that's been a battle for me yeah. too. So yeah. how does insecurity fit in?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, that's
0: a loaded yeah. question. I'm going to do my best. Uh, I, I, I First of all, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Carrie. Uh, emotional security is a must if you're going to practice this paradox. It has little to do with your IQ, has a lot to do with your EQ. Uh, So just to be clear... I don't need to be smarter to be a better leader. Well, I might need to be, (laughs) (laughs) but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, But I don't think the problem is I'm not smart enough to be a leader. We used to say 50 years ago, when I say we, the universities that research leadership used to say, you know, if you know the person with the highest IQ, they get to be the the PhD leader in the room. Today, I know a lot of organizations, great ones, that would say the CEO is not the smartest person, but they're so secure and letting talented people, even more talented people than they are, speak into an issue and they're not threatened by it. So that's why this is so cool and so needed. So I truly believe it when I say I'm not the smartest person at my nonprofit growing leaders. I'm not. I'm secure enough to say Steve is way better at XYZ. Sean is way better at ABC. Marcia is way better Mm. at, you know, HGF or whatever, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. So my my strength isn't in ooh, I got a great idea. Everybody's going to listen to me. It's I'm okay saying to all of those people and by the way, even at home to my wife, sweetheart, you are so better than I am at mm. this. Could I be your support and have you do this? So I even think being a spiritual leader in the home doesn't mean I'm the boss of everything. It means I'm secure enough to assume responsibility for the health of this relationship and to make sure we get somewhere, even if my children and my wife actually are better than I am at getting certain things done,
1: um, that's that's what I would say to that. So I'll give you an example of that, if 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 I can, for just a second, see if okay. it resonates or not. But I, we were talking yeah. before we started recording. I went to a Lakers game last night, first Lakers game I've ever been. Yeah, and uh, it was Fine. interesting. I'm here with my kids and their girlfriends and my wife and. Uh, I've gotten to know Rob Palenka over the last year. So uh, that's been great. And I interviewed him on my podcast, just because it's so fresh. I know it's episode 393. And uh, we all on the way (laughs) north to LA last night listened to the interview with Rob and re-listened in my case. But I thought, you know, you guys are going to meet Rob tonight. And I want you to, you know, have a little bit of background and that kind of thing. And the thing is, I re-listened to his interview was that struck me was his humility. He had incredible ability. He was Kobe's mm-hmm. agent, you know, he's yeah. GM of, of the Lakers and I'm not like a sports guy. Yeah. So I think I probably upset a lot of yeah. people by yeah. going to the Lakers game last night and not appreciating what a treasure it was, but it was a treasure. And I'm sitting yeah. there in the yeah. stands. We had incredible seats. Thank you, Rob. And I'm, he came over uh, and, and just to say hello for a few minutes, game days is really, really mm-hmm. busy. And I'm watching him lead. And, you know, you got LeBron and you got Anthony Davis and uh, J-Lo and Ben Affleck were there that night. Uh, They were sitting a few rows ahead of us. And, you know, you've got this show and then you've got world-class entertainment and the world is watching. And I'm like, how do you lead that? So I am watching basketball, but I'm thinking, how do you lead that? And as you're describing confidence and humility, it occurs to me that really Rob's humility is such, and I hope I'm not embarrassing Rob, because uh, he, he listens to the show. But it it has to be humility to do that. Because if you're going yeah. head-to-head with yeah. LeBron James, or you're going head-to-head with a bunch yeah. of other people, and you have to sometimes, like in negotiations or whatever. But I, I would yeah. think yeah. that one of the reasons he is widely respected for being as good at what he does as he is, that um, it's that humility. And in many ways, I wonder if you're insecure, you think, well, humility is going to make me weaker. Actually, it makes you stronger. End of excursus. Mm, yeah, uh, I don't know. Whether, does that resonate at all? Um, I'm just, I'm just Absolutely. trying to put a, a, yeah. a picture together. And I know I've heard so much about that episode with Rob over the last year from so many listeners in so many different areas. Hopefully, that puts a little picture in people's minds of what that could look like: confidence and humility. In addition to the helpful pictures yeah. that you've you painted, Tim.
0: Yeah, it's, it's spot on, I think. Yeah, Rob obviously is secure enough that he doesn't have to project his self-worth. He can be humble, and yet everybody knows that guy's large and in charge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the greatest sports franchises, you know, in the NBA. That's mm-hmm. cool. I love okay. it. Uh,
1: yes, and I want to be more like that. So uh, let's talk about vision yeah. and blind spots. That's another paradox of great leadership. Yeah. So, you know, we all have blind spots, uh, but you also have to have vision. Yeah. Walk us down that one, Tim.
0: Yeah. So this one would be one that a typical leader might say, that's impossible. Vision and blind spots, blind spots are bad. Vision's good. But I actually believe that, uh, well, I believe because I know the people I've spoken to that are CEOs or senior pastors or or leaders of, of some organization, they have said both were leveraged in my leadership. So here's how both are leveraged. Uh, vision you know, it's necessary. Uh, vision gives a team direction uh, to pursue, and blind spots. But blind spots may be the very motivator that enables them to do it in a brand new way. Mm. So, uh, think with me about all the leaders that you might have talked to that would say, "Man, if I had known way back then what I know now, I would have never started this yeah. thing." How many times have we said mm-hmm. that? You know, and what we were, we're really saying is. I had a number of blind spots that, but that I was just dumb enough to keep going and try a new thing that nobody had ever tried or invent a new product that nobody had ever invented, try a new service that nobody ever tried. And it was the very blind spot that gave me a, uh, an innovative way to do it. So maybe the best way to say what I'm trying to say is with my case study here. So my case study on this one is Sarah Blake. Oh, yeah, Spanx. So you probably know Sarah's name. Sarah, yeah, the founder of Spanx. So she just sold a good portion of her company and gave every employee $10,000 and a free trip anywhere in the world. It's just amazing what she's done. But Sarah's story is a story of vision and blind spots. So more than 20 years ago, about about 20 years ago, she graduates from Florida State University and her first job out of college, Carrie... Is selling fax machines. <laughs> you remember fax machines, <laughs> yeah, door to door, skull. store to yeah. store. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. But she was in the hot Florida sun with, you know, stockings on, pantyhose on, and and high heel shoes. And she said they looked bad, they felt bad. I knew there was another way. Fast forward, she invents this thing she calls Spanx, which was kind of a combination of stockings and a girdle. You know, shapewear. It was a new industry, shapewear. Now she invents this product finds a manufacturer to put it together but then she starts thinking how am i going to get this distributed all over the country and she ends up calling an executive at neiman marcus department mm-hmm. store gets a quick meeting a 10 minute meeting flies out over 5 minutes into this meeting and by the way it's a female executive she made sure it was a it was a lady she's talking to this lady and she's explaining spanx and she's realizing I am not getting getting anywhere. This is not convincing her. She's heard 50 presentations today. So Sarah stands up and says, "Would you follow me?" And the lady says, "I beg your pardon?" She said, "Would you would you follow me into the restroom, please?" And she walks into the restroom. I'm not joking. And right there in front of this lady, she tries her spanks <laughs> on. Sold, sold, ladies and gentlemen, sold, you know? Well, because because immediately you see what, what they can do. And so the, the, the female executive says, we're going to beta test this in a dozen stores. Sarah calls up all of her friends that happen to live in the cities where those stores are located. She sends them money and says, buy out all the spank. She's not stupid. She's good. Well, they start selling. And first thing you know, Bloomingdale's and other department stores start selling it and she takes off and she's now a billionaire. Here's the blind spot. Later on, when Sarah was in front of an audience doing a Q&A session on how she started Spangs, one of the attendees raised her hand and asked the question, wow, what a story. How did you get the attention of a major department store in those big trade shows where there's thousands of exhibitors? And I mean, how did you stand out and differentiate yourself? And Sarah, of course, leaned forward and said, I beg your pardon, trade show? I never went to a trade (laughs) show. I just called the, you know. And so because she didn't know protocol, she bypassed all that muck. And now she looks back and go, I don't even know how I did that. But I think it was a young, sharp leader that thought, why waste time finding out how everybody else is doing it? Let's just, you know, go to the top. Well, Sarah looks back and even says, and I quote her in this book because she's in Atlanta, Georgia. She's in the same city I live in. She'll say, it was the very things I did not know that catapulted me toward my goal. I now say, thank God I didn't know those things. Carrie, you know this. If you know too much, you have what Donald Miller calls the curse of knowledge. Remember, he used to use that term, maybe still Mm -hmm. does, the curse Mm -hmm. of knowledge. Knowing too much causes you to get stuck in the way we did it in 2020, when we need to know, how do you do it in 2022 yeah. or 2023, you know? So it's the, sometimes the stuff we learn is the very enemy of what we need to learn. So um, that's why this paradox is so vital for leaders to practice blind spots and vision.
1: So let me ask you, because uh, I I agree with that, and it's, it's a great name. To something that I've talked about, not publicly, but just privately with leaders I coach. Yeah. And, you know, they'll often ask me about the early days of my leadership, where within five years we had sold historic buildings, amalgamated three congregations, yeah. entered into a multi million dollar building project in a denomination where that wasn't done. And looking back on it now, it's like, yeah. I call it, I was stupid. Like, I didn't know you couldn't do it. And people would tell me you couldn't <laughs> yeah. do it, but I just went ahead and did it. And it worked, you know, Mm -hmm. and same with a leadership podcast. It's like, well, I'll just try it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then and then it just works, right? And what happens now is as you get better at something, you start to analyze. You have dashboards, you have KPIs, you have all that stuff. Is there are there a set of disciplines, Tim, to help keep you stupid, (laughs) if I can put it that way, to keep to keep you with that entrepreneurial. I don't really know whether this is going to work because, and, and, you know, what makes this more complicated to get back to what we talked about earlier is now you have data and case studies available that we didn't have 25 years ago because information was scarcer. Yeah. Yeah. So now you can, you can analyze yourself to death. How do you, how do you cultivate that discipline, you know, two, three decades into leadership? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So in the chapter, I
0: do talk about this, and I talk about the art of maintaining rookie smarts. You were just describing rookie okay. smarts. You had some rookie smarts in podcast, and church, and and so many other things. Everything outside of law, which is what you studied, yeah. right?
1: So you were a rookie at all these oh, other yeah, things. I was, so have, so mostly am I mostly don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> there's we're moving, we're pivoting no, this year. I know. There's that humility. Wow, coming. And I, I really. Yeah. Yeah, You know, when, when, when we onboard people on our team and they're like, so, you know, it seems really big on the outside. It's like, we actually don't know what we're doing. That's the reality, but it works and we're connecting and we're having fun and we're hopefully making a difference. But so what are, what are the disciplines to, to keep rookie smarts? Okay. Yeah. So there's a, there's a handful of them and I don't know if I
0: remember all of them, but there's a couple of big ideas that might be helpful right here. One is I think as I continue in the same industry that I'm in, I need to continue to meet with and interview people that are in other industries. Some of the best ideas that are introduced to what you do or what I do are going to come not from the same industry. We've all gotten stuck. You know, this is how we make widgets, you know, on the assembly line. So um, I think, well, the the classic story that you know very well, because you just interviewed Aaron is the Reed Hastings story and Netflix. So you know that story. Netflix, Reed came up with it, I think, and you may correct me here, but Reed came up with it in 1997 when he'd returned a a video cassette back to a Blockbuster video store and got this huge fine. And of course, on his drive home, he had two thoughts in his mind. Number one, how am I going to tell my wife I just got this big (laughs) fine for this lost video cassette? (laughs) But then number two, he thought, there's got to be a better way to do home entertainment. And that was when Reed began to see that the internet was getting big and that maybe we could do flicks on the internet, hence Netflix. He takes the idea to Blockbuster and they go, nah, we got this. What a bad move. Now, what the problem was, was they had mastered video cassettes. They hadn't mastered the larger picture, home entertainment. Had they had the eye on the outcome, not the method, they might have been open. So Rookie Smarts taught Reed, oh, well, I'll get another industry. And it was basically online videos. And you know the rest of the story. The rest is history. But what's crazy to me is he actually took the idea to Blockbuster and they turned him down. And now I don't even know if there's maybe one Blockbuster video store in all the
1: world right now or something I like that. I heard that, that there it's is crazy. one left. But yeah, the chain went bankrupt over a decade yeah. ago and everything. And it's it's fascinating. Yeah. I've got to have Scott Beck back on because he scaled Blockbuster. Yeah. But it was after he sold yeah. Blockbuster to, I think it was Viacom or something like that, um, a decade in. Yeah. And it was yeah. that conglomerate that made that decision, right? Which is which is good. Okay, man, yeah. this is this is fun. I want to touch on one or two more. Stubborn and open-minded. Okay. Ooh, stubborn and open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. This one is uh, when I've talked
0: to people, this is often the favorite because they go, "I need this desperately and I don't know how mm. to do it." Because isn't it true Carrie? we tend to be one or the other. We tend to be very open-minded people or we tend to be very stubborn yep. people. And for me, I tend to be a little bit more stubborn. Uh, that's just my hard wiring. What would you say you are uh, more, a
1: hard, open-minded
0: or stubborn? Definitely
1: stubborn. Uh, stubborn child. I, I come from Dutch stock. So, anybody who's who's got Dutch stock, yeah. there's some, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, there's uh, wooden shoes, wooden head, wooden listen. So, there's definitely an aspect of that. <laughs> but one of, I was born in Canada, but, you know, it's Dutch back yeah. for yeah. centuries and centuries. And, um so I I I one of my goals, one of my stated goals is, you know, now that I'm well into my 50s is I want to become more open every year. There are certain convictions, there are times where I've gotten too like I can look back on a couple of decisions in 2022 where I'm like I was too open minded on that. My gut told me this wasn't going to work and I kind of let other people, you know, kind of win and I'm like, yeah, we should have just done it the way I thought we should have done it. But then on the other hand, if that's always the case, your gut isn't accurate. And so, and I also realize, I think in the changing leadership landscape, as we talked about at the beginning with the demands and everything that come in, if you're a closed leader, you are not going to keep other leaders on your team. As our mutual friend Andy Stanley says, leaders who refuse to listen will eventually be surrounded by people with nothing to say. And I think that's very true. So, yes, I am yes. very actively trying to manage. So, you got an active student here. Uh, you know, my my gut, my, mm, I think we need to go this way versus, but I'm open. And I also realize that there's often a three-decade gap now between me and my staff. And they just yeah. see things differently yeah. than I do. So, help me. Help me in the middle of this mess. What do I do? Yeah.
0: Well, um, I would say I could summarize this one best by saying leaders will never reach a goal without being strong-willed. In fact, that may be a better word than stubborn, strong-willed, okay? Uh, Without a strong will, obstacles are going to stop them. At the same time, they'd be arrogant to think they have all the answers. They must be open to voices of counsel, to flex, to adapt to new and changing realities. So Coach K at Duke University said said it this way. I love what he said. He said, the most incredibly interesting thing— about being a leader. It's what adjustments you make and how you make them while keeping your core principles alive and well. So I think when you're stubborn, you have a chance of reaching your goal. When you're open-minded, you have a chance of taking others with you. And that's what this boils down to. So uh, it's it's hard, but my case study on this one is Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. Yeah. So real quick, his story is quite amazing. He had one restaurant for ten years, not fifty, not hundred, not two hundred. One restaurant, and he just really tweaked the recipe both for his food and for his organization. Truett Cathy is a brilliant example of stubborn and open-minded. You know the stubborn part. He had a certain set of values that he would not compromise. One of them that everybody knows Chick Fil A for is closed on Sunday. You know they are not open on that day. For some fast food restaurants, Sunday is the number one sales day of the Mm -hmm. week. I mean, McDonald's would never give up Sundays at all. But he said, nope, that's not a day you're going to work for me. You're going to be home with your family in worship. I'm not going to tell you how to worship, who to worship, or what family to spend time with, but you're going to be not working for me. Well, that created scarcity. Everybody knows you can't go to Chick-fil-A on Sunday. Let's go every other day, you know, or whatever. And I think that's what they're doing. So Truett Cathy has a set of core beliefs that he's stubborn about, but everything else he was so open on. He was open about his people. In fact, I would say this. People is a great example. He was, one of his core was believe in your people. He would err on the side of believing in his people, but if any one of those people crossed a line with his values, they're out of there. They're gone. Truett Cathy has been known to drive up to another state and fire a Chick-fil-A operator if they were open on Sunday. And that's happened, by the way. Chick-fil-A operator open up on Sunday. Somebody calls Truett and says, hey, one of your restaurants is open on Sunday. <laughs> I'm going to Arkansas. And he went park. So I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. That's right. Yeah. So my point is, I loved really actually talking to Truett about this before he passed away, but then talking to Dan, his son, and... Tim Disopolis, the president, Mark Miller, uh, All great Bill Dunphy, people. so many great executives that just great men. Yeah. And uh, I learned a bunch
1: on this one because this is one I need to, I need to do better at mm. myself. So stubborn and open-mindedness. Okay. Let's talk about one more before we wrap up. High standards and gracious forgiveness. That one really popped to me. Because I would say, too, this is where where I love the audience that we have. You know, we try to bring the best of the business world to the church world and the best of the church world to the business world. I would say the business world, if it has an Achilles heel, is like high standards and very little gracious forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. And the church world is kind of the opposite. It's like lots of gracious forgiveness and no <laughs> yeah. standards. It's like, guys, you're really nice, but this yeah. is terrible. Um, so, you know, like, yeah. like uh, yeah. where, where, t- tell us about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head just there. I I think we we tend to think if you're going to offer any forgiveness, you're going to get mediocre at best from people because they know they're going to be let off the hook. But you're absolutely right. In many corporations, it's like do or die, dog eat dog, and you dare not try something too risky because if you do it wrong, you're going to get fired. And it's just awful. So um, my, my case study on this one, I actually thought first of using John Maxwell because I worked for John Maxwell for 20 years, and I felt like he did this one well. But I actually picked a historical leader that might surprise you. Um, My case study on this one was Harriet Tubman. Oh, wow. uh, The the leader of the Underground Railroad during the United States Civil War. Yeah. So real quick, her story might be intriguing to your listeners. So Harriet Tubman was this tiny little lady, probably four foot 11 at best, and uh, she was a slave in Maryland, and she, she uh, got out of slavery. She, she escaped. But yet, instead of just enjoying her freedom in the North, she decided to go back, start this underground railroad, and she rescued hundreds of slaves out of slavery uh, before the Civil War was fought and ended and freed all slaves. So here's how she did it. When she would gather a group of, of slaves, I know this is so hard to talk about mm. because it's so wrong. Mm. Mm. But these were generally speaking African American people that it just it was just so wrong. But they were, you know, in they were working cotton fields in the South, generally speaking. She would bring them out to a place and she'd talk to them about what they were going to do, the route they were going to take up to New York or up to Toronto or wherever they were going. Along the way, you know, she was describing kind of a do or die. You had to be quiet. You had to do this, go here, turn left, stop talking, you know, the whole thing. Well, along the way, almost every single trip, one of those slaves said, I can't do this anymore. I'm out of here. And Harry Tubman would say, you're not leaving. And she got very radical in her leadership. In fact, dare I say, she would hold a gun to their head, carry and say, you you try to leave, you're gonna get a bullet through your head. And I know this again, this is so wrong, mm-hmm. but here's why she had to do that. She thought if you leave, you're gonna get caught, you're gonna tell everybody else because they're gonna talk it out of you, and you're gonna, and we're all gonna get yeah, killed. Yeah. So she would, you know, have that high standard and hold a gun to their head to keep the standard when they would repent, essentially, and say, Okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm gonna do it. She would sit down with them. This is a powerful story. She would sit down at the wood and say, You're totally forgiven. Let's do this together. Oh. And uh, she would extend forgiveness, and it was just so amazing. So, Carrie, I actually developed a habitude off of this great truth. And if you don't mind, oh, I want to share it real quick right now, because it will be, a, I think it will be a handle for listeners. I call it the Golden Gate Paradox, the Golden Gate Paradox. So you're sitting in California right now. You know just north of you is the Golden mm-hmm. Gate Bridge in San Beautiful. Francisco. That bridge was a feat of engineering that happened in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Because it was built during the Great Depression, a lot of guys signed up for the job that weren't bridge builders. They were just everyday guys out of work. Right. And so they had a lot of, can I just say it, lay people you know, putting bolts in this big steel bridge. And guys were falling to the ground, or to the falling to their death. It was a very scary enterprise, as you can imagine. So the workers start talking to the foreman, a guy named Strauss, and they begged him to stop early on and put a safety net in there. Well, Strauss thought it over and thought, oh my gosh, if we have to buy a safety net, we're going to go over budget, so we're not going to be on budget, and we're going to take way longer because it's going to take... A long time to build this thing. We're not going to finish on time. We're not going to finish on budget. But thankfully, Mr. Strauss thought, I got to do this for the sake of the people. He put this $300,000 safety net in. And back then, you know, that's a lot of money. Well, he puts it in assuming now, forget it, forget the budget, forget the time. But actually the paradox was they finish on time and under budget. Here's why. As those guys started putting bolts in, they no longer had to worry about their safety and survival. They were worried about succeeding. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to worry about falling anymore because they would bounce into a net and pop back up. There were 19 people that joined what they called the halfway, excuse me, the halfway to hell club because they had fallen into a net and bounced back up and went back to work. And I hope I'm not losing you in the story, but what was so cool was the very safety net that took time to build was what saved them and put that thing on a fast track to get done on time. And I feel like there's an an application for us today. Leaders have to say, here's a high standard. We're going to be Apple. We're going to be Amazon. We're going to be Zappos. We're going to set a high standard. However, I just want you to know, I love you all. And I love you so much that if you'll push to meet this standard, if you fall short, I'm going to forgive you. And word gets around that you are forgiven, but that doesn't drop the standard. So I'll stop there. I know we need to end oh. here, but I just want to encourage listeners. Both of them are so critical to good leadership, I think. No,
1: that's really good. The high, you know, and I think the uh, high standard, high grace also creates really high trust and high engagement. If you really look at yeah. that, right? Yeah, like, because if you're a high grace environment and you're not doing anything, that's really nice, but high capacity people don't yeah. stick around. And if you have high trust yeah. and high standards, or high standards, I should say, not high trust, high standards, um, you burn people out. People just become, you know, there's bodies everywhere. Literally, you were, yeah. you were saying on the bridge, there were that's literally exactly right. bodies everywhere, but yeah. there are bodies everywhere. And uh, I think that's really good. Tim, this is fascinating. It's always good talking to you. The book is called The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, available everywhere books are sold. Um, any final word for listeners? And then tell us where we can find you online. Yeah, sure. I would say
0: my last word of encouragement to listeners would be this. If we can practice these paradoxes, it communicates so much more than just good leadership to, to people. It communicates, this leader knows me. He understands me. He gets me because I'm humble when I need to be humble at 10 a.m., but you know, confident when I need to be confident at 3 p.m. or whatever. And I think the known team member, just is so loyal. So here's a picture of this. Back in 1945, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president at the time of the United States, passed away. He had been elected to four terms of office. He was very, very loved by American people. When his casket was marched through the streets of Washington, D.C., thousands lined along the sidewalk just to pay their respects to the president. Several people, Carrie, were seen crying. People that didn't even know the guy just were crying. One particular man just started sobbing on the street and fell to his knees weeping over the president. When a man standing right next to him helped him to his feet, he said to the guy that was sobbing, did you know the president? No, the man said, but he knew me. Oh, wow. I love that picture no, I didn't know him,
1: but he sure do me. Huh. I think to myself, man, that's the one a leader. That's the kind of leader i want to mm. be for my people. Yeah. Boy, that's a great metaphor. Tim, thank you so much. So, uh, yeah. growingleaders.org? Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Growingleaders.com or .org. You can okay, find dot us. Okay.
1: .com.org. Yeah, yeah. All right. Tim Elmore, it's <laughs> yeah. always a joy. Terry, great to thank be you. Thank so you so much, my friend. You too. Okay. Thank you. Tim always brings so many insights and uh, that book is meaty. If you're looking for a different way to lead, and I think, you know, even if you are part of the great resignation, um, if you're still leading, it's going to take a different skill set. Make sure you check out his book and uh, we've got everything you would want to know from this episode in the show notes. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 465. You can pick it up absolutely free there. And make sure you check out what our partners have to offer too. MetaShare has a 98% customer satisfaction rating and an average member savings of 50% or more. Find out how much you could save by going to metashare.com slash carry. And Red Letter Living would love to help you get in on a 40-day challenge for 2022. You can get 10 to 40% off. And pastors, you'll get a free book. All you have to do is go to redletterchallenge.com slash carry. That's redletterchallenge.com slash carry. Next episode, end of this year. Can you believe it? We've got Nikki Gumble coming up. And uh, we went in some brand new directions here. Nikki had a big announcement recently. He is stepping back as the lead pastor, the vicar, as they would say, of Holy Trinity Brompton, where he served for a long time to focus fully on Alpha and the wider church. Uh, but he rejoins us, and we go into his background, how his education at Eton, Cambridge, and Oxford prepared him for law and ministry, his family's background as refugees from Nazi Germany, really great conversation, and how he created the popular Bible in One Year study. So if you're looking for a way to access the Bible, you might want to check that out. Here's an excerpt from the conversation with Nikki.
0: Many of his family died in the Holocaust. So um, he had lost... I imagine, although he never spoke to me about it, he'd lost many of his, most of his friends. And now I've discovered a a great number of his family in the Holocaust. He never spoke to me about it. My mother, when I was 14, my mother took my sister and I for a walk and said, your father is German and Jewish
1: and you're never to speak to him about it. And we never did. That's next time on the podcast. And of course, if you subscribe, you get that for free. Also coming up, we got a loaded uh, new year. We got Rick Warren to kick off 2022. Donald Miller, Mark Sayers, Nona Jones, Craig Rochelle, Bobby Grunwald, DJ Soto. Um, Well, and that just gets us out of the first few episodes. If you are new to the podcast and haven't subscribed, I would invite you to do that. And if you have never left a rating and review and are feeling in a generous mood, please do so. Just wherever you listen to the podcast, leave us a rating. It helps us get the word out. And I got a couple of announcements for you. First of all, uh, we got a 20 million download celebration coming up. We don't know when it's going to hit. Probably, could be between Christmas and New Year's, could be early in the new year. When we hit $20 million, what we're going to do, we're going to celebrate you, the listeners, and we are going to share $1,500 in Starbucks on my social media channels. All you have to do is follow me on the socials. I'm C. Newhoff on Facebook and Twitter and Carrie Newhoff on Instagram. When we hit 20 million, and thank you for that, it is unbelievable even as I say that. We'll post a barcode that you can share at Starbucks checkout. And then, New Year's is almost here. Um, Yeah. Do you say New Year or New Year's? I don't know. Anyway, you know 2022 is almost here. I want to ask you about your habits. Do you think your current habits are getting you where you want to be? Or, would you like some fresh habits for the new year? And I'm not talking about resolutions that you make and it's like, oh yeah, you know, it's better in January. And really, seriously, where do you want to be 12 months from now and what habits are going to get you there? So no matter how successful you are, every leader I know is really juggling three priorities at some level, time, influence, and mission. So with 2022 right around the corner, how are you going to really work to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. If you're looking for some guidance, I have a brand new course to help you make progress. I am releasing the complete At Your Best course. So if you've read the At Your Best book, um, this builds on it. In fact, there's content that's never been seen before, didn't make it into the book, ninja habits, stuff that will get you more productivity than you could imagine. And uh, it is in the complete At Your Best course. If you got the masterclass, a lot of you got that for free when we offered it. Well, that is part of the course, but not the whole course. I held back about eight units that we developed, seven or eight units, that are now being released for the first time. So this course starts by covering the basics that I cover in At Your Best, like how to leverage your time, energy, and priorities, clarifying what matters most. So you got a video guide and a study companion. But after that, it covers seven advanced productivity principles and strategies That I just haven't shared anywhere else. And these are the strategies I personally use every day that help me accomplish everything I need to get done. There is also a special price for those of you who have read the book or taken the masterclass. You can build those principles and then stack on even more. And if you're brand new to it, well, it's a great introduction, too. You can work your way through the material and I promise you a more productive 2022. You say promise. How can you promise? Well, if you buy the course, it comes with a 30-day money-back, no questions asked, guaranteed. If you are not productive, I will give you your money back. Promise. Okay? So enroll today by going to yourbestcourse.com The current pricing and offers expire on Thursday, January 6th. It's a New Year's special. Do not miss out. Go to yourbestcourse.com and you can get everything there. And remember, watch for us on the socials. 20 million downloads coming your way. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.
0: You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.